We are and always will be a nation of immigrants. This is my country, my damn country. Give me my country, you can keep the rest. Old men and women yearning for freedom and opportunity who leave their homelands and come to a new country to start their lives over. We were strangers once too. My country, my damn country. Give me my Hello, 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 aliens and allies. Your friendly Russian is here. This is We the Aliens Podcast, and I am your host, Sasha Kapustina. Here, I talk to immigrants who are kicking ass in the U.S. Thank you for tuning in. This is part two of my conversation with Isham Udgiri, a Moroccan-American tech entrepreneur. He is the founder of Enigma, a startup that puts data in service of small businesses. They specifically focus on the access to capital. Uh, among their clients are PayPal, American Express, and Capital One. If you haven't listened to part one, you can find it wherever you're listening right now. We talk about how Isham's Moroccan, French, and American backgrounds have shaped his worldview. And in this episode, we talk more about what his company does and the larger context of the impact of data on the society. And here's our chat. I want to ask you, what was that first moment where you faced the power of data, where you thought, wow, that's impressive? I mean, my very first interaction with it, when I started working in the energy industry, I was just amazed that I could, you know, take a, a piece of land or a development site hundreds and hundreds of miles away and then just zoom in on it uh, with all kinds of, you know, satellite imagery, underground radars, um, probes that were sent into oil wells like 60 years ago, the data still being available. I once remember like analyzing a very, very specific abandoned oil well in the 60s and I was shipped a cardboard box of these oil logs. They look like books that have no spine, they're maybe 60 pages thick. They have no spine and you can unfold it all in like an accordion. And I laid it out on my apartment and I looked at this, you know, what was practically like museum piece, piece yeah. of data that someone <laughs> had kept um, for a very long time of when this one engineer had um, sent a probe down the well. And I, I sat there thinking, you know, I was always, obsessed with science and, you know, how people conduct science as a series of experiments with data. But the first time I understood it in terms of being in industry and an application of the world was when I saw my first like oil well log. And that was this moment where, and it doesn't, you know, um, mean much in terms of how it connects me to my current work, but just the the, the idea that we would preserve these things to try to analyze them after mm -hmm. uh, that's when it hit me the most like viscerally and just as like an experience and an object that I could touch so yeah that was my very first time I could definitely relate to that that's interesting I had a similar experience recently I went to a museum I went to the Met and I was looking on all of at all of these artifacts and after this whole most recent NFT boom and how yes. everything is digital and everything is you know in the metaverse and essentially you know here are these objects that we're preserving for thousands of years yes and they carry in them proof of work yes and it's also it's like it's the same concept it's of course just, yeah and it's uh i was emotionally touched by it and it's interesting how you had this connection to data through a piece of you know data in a, in a whole different you know, format that we don't even use anymore, no. but, but it's there. And when most people think about data, people think about the internet and how yeah. our movements and how our actions are being tracked on the internet. How did you come up with the concept of working with the real life data? You know, the internet, I think has shown us what can be done. What's happened there is we've deployed some very advanced analytical techniques. Um, you know, some advanced like probability and math and statistics that allows us to see patterns that we wouldn't have seen, you know, um, with more kind of primitive calculations, right? And so we're seeing patterns across a wide ocean 
of, of, of data. And, and that was very enlightening and allowed people to run experiments with quick feedback loops on the internet. When it comes to real world data, data about companies, people, places in the real world, and not their online manifestation, but things like, does this restaurant have a liquor license? Is there a building permit attached to it? You know, who owns it? What's in corporation record? How much money do they make? Uh, what kind of food do they serve? What time do they close? All of these pieces of data kind of scattered across without a very, very strong standard. And obviously, knowledge lives online and offline off the internet, but it's, it's essentially about um, behavior in the real world that I think we can capture a whole new level of economic activity. But it's nothing novel that we do. I mean, we just to be very clear, what we do is provide uh, one of the most granular and uh, dynamic databases of small companies in the US. Primarily, we have a large data source that comes from um, public data documents that are filed by the government, everything from, you know, uh, liens to tax information to, you know, corporate records, data that we crawl from the internet, like, like the way we predict what industry a company is in is by reading its web page and inferring it based on a model that we've built and tagged from others. And do you have algorithms doing that or people? Um, well, it's always a mix of both, right? There's no algorithms without the people, okay. but there's no one like manually. It's a machine learning process okay. for sure. There's a lot of, you know, uh, there are a lot of computers involved, not just the ones we're typing on, but many in the cloud that are crunching these numbers. I mean, at a high level, what we're focused on now is getting broader access to the financial ecosystem to small businesses. Right. We think the small business economy could be much larger than it is, or actually is larger than it is, and that its financial needs are not met. And small businesses end up having to make you know, bad decisions um, based on not accessing the capital that they need. And so how would that happen for, like, so who, who's the client in, the, in this? So our clients are mostly banks, uh -huh. um, lenders, um, folks who are, interested in finding companies to, you know, market to or partner with, um, you know, folks that want to engage with any potential small business as a client or folks that want to lend to them or folks that want to insure them, folks that want to offer them all kinds of services. Um, understanding, you know, everything from who's a real company to, you know, a potentially fraudulent company mm. um, or a company and group of people involved in illicit activity. We help screen for those sort of things. Um, to more importantly, you know, this has been very new to us. Um, we've been working with a lot of uh, uh, the banks and, and, and some partners in the ecosystem to help the banks even analyze their own data uh, cooperatively uh, to do things like, how is this business growing over time? Is it trending positively over time? Um, because the default in the small business economy is to view every small business as being extremely risky hmm. and to ask for onerous personal guarantees from the uh, entrepreneur, right? So if you look at most small business credit card products, the entrepreneur is usually on the hook for that debt. And it's hard for small business to compete with kind of corporate and Wall Street based economy that are more protected uh, when you're asking yes when, when, when they're more when like managers and employees are more protected from you know uh, uh their actions i mean they're certainly liable to their shareholders and can get fired and all kinds of things but when you're running a family business yeah but their house is not going to be taken away yes ever correct and that's that's really not a function of like politics no one likes it it's just a function of risk right and so what we help the banks do is basically de-risk a huge population of the small business economy by showing them for the first time metrics and insights about specific small businesses all the way down to the you know coffee shop or e-commerce company things that are relevant to how they view the riskiness some some banks are like i don't want to do business with anyone who's not been in business for two years another bank may have as a strategy i only want to do business with new e-commerce companies mm -hmm. right yeah and so just even understanding who's who against the in the 30 million or so odd 
small businesses that exist in the US, people um, use our database uh, to do that. And so that makes total sense. The only part that kind of always comes up for me, and I think for many people is privacy. And even though it's not a person, it's not personal privacy of an individual, yes. it's a it's sort of, does a company have privacy? I think companies, first of all, do have privacy, right? Everyone starts with ultimate privacy when you start, mm -hmm. but then you enter an ecosystem and you need to do some trade, right? right? And it's as simple as, hey, I'm buying a piece of property from you. Like, can you show me that you own, you know, the property or the goods or, you know, what's your supply chain like or so on? And suddenly, you know, a company is more and more revealing of its inner workings in order to... Well, but that's on, you know, individual level. Like, I'm disclosing this to my partner in privacy. Correct. I don't wish for that information necessarily to become public knowledge, then to be collected, assembled and worked on and then sold as a product to somebody else. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, again, varying, varying degrees. Some things are public for a reason. So your corporate registrations are public so that people know they're dealing with a real business or liens against you are public, right? So if you borrowed money from someone, they can put a lien against you to tell the world, hey, if you want to borrow from, even if you're private, if you want to borrow from this person, there's like a queue of people in that debt, right? Well, introduced to the other debt holders um things like you know whether things like your rest restaurant grade rating are public um import export activities public every import container that comes into the united states hmm. is a matter of public information like who's imported it what's inside it what's the weight there's a lot we're wildly transparent as a society when it comes to companies very, very transparent. Even H-1B visa hirings, if you would want to know, speaking of immigration, like who's hired folks on H-1B, you could look up our company, you could see four roles, you know, and their salaries, um, not the names of the individuals, but certainly that we, that four H-1Bs are assigned to us. So there's so much information out there. That's not the problem. I think the stitching it together for us is the problem and the turning it into signal, uh -huh. like companies that look like this tend to be, you know, profitable and healthy and sustainable or companies that look like this are actually in a pretty bad spot. They need, you know, probably an injection of capital to help. So we help profile, but do I believe that a company is entitled to privacy? Absolutely. But, you know, there, there's like a line that's drawn that's much less severe than a person, mm -hmm. much less severe than a person. But I think it's a good trade for the protection that a company gives you, which is you can't, you know, necessarily like find me liable, personally liable for a certain amount of things. So it, it for me, it's like kind of logically built in, right? You can do certain things as a person that you can't do as right. a company. And then as a company, you, 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 you can do things that you cannot do as a person. And then sort of there's a trade-off as you, you were explaining, there's a trade-off to being open about who you are. You're kind of building Correct. your reputation Correct. with the community, right? So that's Correct. what the trade-off to being open is. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of time, like a lot of sort of fear is from people not knowing how the algorithms digest that whole thing. Basically it's the trust. Yeah. If I, as an entrepreneur, get to present my own case to a banker. I bring yeah. my own information, I bring my numbers and I present myself. And then yeah. in, an, in this new world that we're venturing into where data drives all the decisions, it's the algorithm that picks out all of these elements and does it for me. Yeah, it's, um, I love that you touch on this subject because it's such an interesting one on the consumer side, we are so far into the algorithms taking over, so to speak. And it has its own range of problems, right? Like, you know, the effects of young teens socialization because of TikTok and all of these words. There's all kinds of weird things are happening. Effects of adult socialization because of yeah. YouTube. <laughs> but in SMB world, and especially in the States, like 43% of the lending flow 
um, under a million dollars is done by the community banks, mm -hmm. roughly 5,000 banks that do half of the lending in the United States. And these banks have nowhere near the sophistication to use, you know, the data required in a truly um, advanced analytics capacity in an automated way. Mm -hmm. Most of the lending is still happening in a very old way. And actually the opportunity from an algorithm standpoint, the like fruit is hanging so low. It is literally on the ground, still on the tree, but literally on the ground. And that's what, that's the kind of impact I think we're, you know, we're wanting to have on the market is to make it easier for people who are, you know, obviously in a healthy position to kind of unmask, uh, unmask them and, and, and give them greater access to credit. There's a fear that it'll go, you know, the way of the algorithm, kind of like your credit score has, mm -hmm. right? Um, but banks don't even trust credit scores anymore. They like use it as one in point amongst many. There are, you know, many people innovating in the financial space who view credit scores just one attribute. So there's a constant, I think, competition when it comes to that, um, that, you know, everyone kind of, there's a really good quote, I forget what it is, is so all models are false. Some are just useful. Right. From like a modeling perspective. So the belief in algorithm world is actually, we kind of have it all wrong to begin with. Like we don't know the truth. But we're, this is how often we're close. Like that's how we measure ourselves. Like what's our predictability rate? What's our accuracy? And then we, we get to a point where these are better and better and better and better. Hopefully the belief is that there's a net amount of growth in the system. And should there always be a human valve available? For sure. Um, the question is just how expensive is it for that human valve to be there if someone just needs you know, a small uh, financial commitment. Maybe we can take care of that. So like in the in the world of the future where where this whole thing works right, how would you imagine it working? I'm trying to wrap my brain around because I'm not in the financial services and, you know, I have taken loans, but like on the, in, again, in the most basic way, in the simple way, the traditional way. Uh, and yeah. uh, so how would that work in the bright future? So I think the, the most important thing, the bias that you want to avoid is that folks with capital end up doing better, right? So what you want to do is basically, you know, remove as many requirements from capital away for entrepreneurship. And what you do is you try to objectively and as scientifically as possible, figure out who's performing well, who's likely to perform well and allocate capital or resources, however the metaphor is and whatever political future we live, live in, um, to folks who are doing a great job, right? Which seems pretty natural for value creation in general. And so I think the promise of a more algorithmic approach towards credit is fundamentally just a promise of a more scientific one. And one that doesn't make the bank say, well, we'll lend to you if you can guarantee us, right? right? Because that's the that's what creates things like the wealth gap and the income, you know, uh, fundamental kind of stratospheric society. Yeah. I think what excites me about the future, at least conceptually speaking, is that there is less onus on personal guarantees being there for entrepreneurship, and that risk is kind of taken pretty broadly and is well measured, right? And if you do that well, I think you unlock um, another you know, uh, a level of value because you've injected some, some fairness and science into the process and aren't biasing it with things people inherit, let's say. Right. But it does feel, and I, let me, maybe, maybe you can break it down for me. We do know yeah. that uh, success of a person, of an individual in life in the United States mm -hmm. is very much defined by the zip code they're born in. Correct. And that makes tons of sense for a variety of reasons. Except for it's not quote unquote fair. Oh yeah. I, and I don't think it's the optimal distribution either. And so if we talk about empowering small business yes, and when we talk about data, we always interpret data of the past and we rely on the data that already exists. Sure. 
So by default, certain zip codes will be performing better than other. And businesses like individuals will have history and data that will be telling a certain story. Yep. Will it be a self-defeating kind of thing? Like, will the money still gravitate through data to the more efficient and more successful spots and zip codes? Yeah, I mean, I, I have this, um, like, sneaking suspicion that when there's big changes in an economic system, right, when there's, like, you know, the dirty word in our industry, so funny, people make fun of it now, it's called disruption, right? When there's like some sort of disruption, um, but when when things change and they do, um, you know, new patterns, new histories, new trends emerge. If you look at the like time scale of you know um, uh, humanity, just globally, like how things have evolved, you know, zip codes in America is a is a very small sample set, right? And the reality of the matter is things can be pretty dynamic. I'll give you an example. I'm out here in California. Let's talk like small business story. And there's a good documentary about this, which is really interesting. Um, it is almost impossible to find a Dunkin' Donuts in Los Angeles and actually in Southern California. Do you know why? The, the first one popped up, I think three years ago or four years but ago. But do you know the like reason for this or no? No. Okay. So there's this one Cambodian refugee from the Khmer Rouge, like like the whole extended family eradicated village burnt down story yeah. comes to Los Angeles um, and or somewhere in the Los Angeles metropolitan area somewhere in Southern California and gets a job at a Winchell's donut house loves donuts overnight like uh, obsessed with eating donuts um, and I forget his name. I think it could have been Ted, which is his Americanized name. And what he does over the period of the next, I believe is almost two decades, is he starts his own donut shop. And then he fanatically um, recruits refugees, like brings refugees over um, from Cambodia, just makes it his life work and mission. Mm-hmm. Brings these families to Southern California, sets them up with their first donut shop, teaches them how to do it, like has them run the donut shop. And he's, you know, suddenly so big that Dunkin' Donuts, this chain across the East Coast, could never enter uh, the Southern California market, like ever. And there's this chain of thousands of Cambodian immigrant family donut shops. I should talk to that guy. And that alone, (laughs) we think about the donut market in the United States, and that alone is like, you know, it's because they found a way to do this and provided a service uh, in the real world at scale. And so, you know, I know that the um, zip code bias is real and that the forces working against people who start from scratch are really, really hard. Um, but I think it's actually trending, you know, positively in terms of small business, not necessarily the wealth gap, right? But the value creation component uh, feels especially strong and it feels like if we work hard enough to unlock this part of the ecosystem that growth is pent up i think the things that have generally kept small business small are with technology also being really challenged maybe one day you know what's left to compete on is truly just creativity and you know uh, how hard people work like that would be great that's why we do the data thing it's to give everyone kind of a fair advantage on the knowledge that they have, try to democratize it and interpret it for people. So do I hear you correct that banks, they would want to go into that quote unquote underprivileged zip codes, let's say. Yes, absolutely. And create more business there and empower more demand there because that's a market. The banks are always interested in taking like appropriate risk and lending money. They have way too much money right now. That's true. Like the (laughs) the interest rate environment. Yes, like we're living in an economy where allocators of capital can't find places to put it, right? And so, you know, we're uh, we're starting to demystify that with um, small business. Certainly like that's what we want to do at Enigma, but these banks want to do it of their own. They really want to appeal to small business as a category and not 
for some branding reason, but because the, the profits are real and small business is very resilient sector. I mean, if you look at the, the, the PPP numbers, mm -hmm. you'll learn also that fewer immigrant owned businesses applied for pandemic government aid, which is like an interesting stat for you on your show. Um, but that fundamentally, you know, businesses did pretty well and that PPP was at the end of the day very effective in keeping a lot of them, you know, alive. And it was certainly a small bailout compared to uh, what was happening in, in, in the rest of the world, not in uh, absolute value, but in how other employees were taking care of, like in France, government was, you know, helping individual folks with salaries, et cetera. That was all on businesses back in the United States. Uh, so I think the sector has been, I mean, definitely taking the beating in the last year, but fundamentally proved to be pretty resilient in certain areas of super fast growth, like how fast, you know, restaurants pivoted to online, things like yeah. that was very, very surprising to a lot of the early analysts. Hmm. Yeah. Well, while we're on the COVID thing, uh, what were some of the other unexpected data points that you observed? One of the things that interests us the most is just like we still haven't dug into some of these policy questions about, you know, different public health responses and the effect on businesses. I mean, the one thing that really sucks, let's put this one out vis-a-vis -vis the topic of immigration, is that a lot of the industries that um, COVID impacted were industries that immigrants have even like higher numbers yeah. of. So taxi drivers, I think that's like 65% of taxi drivers are immigrants. You know, dry cleaners is north of 50. Um, Restaurants. Gas stations. Yeah, yeah. So you had this, you know, kind of um, asymmetric hit in between, you know, small business, big business, you know, um, immigrant owned businesses. And that was especially sad to see. I mean, it was just like the, the, the nature of the, of, of, of the setup there. But I, I think we're like, at least in the numbers that we're seeing, like some, some, some growth again. And I'm just very excited about that. And if you talk to the banks last March, they were talking to us about things like, Ishan, I can't even tell who in my portfolio is a restaurant. These are banks that have millions of business accounts that tell us like, we don't even know who is a restaurant. Like, I think we asked them somewhere on some form, but we're here looking at all 2 million of them at a time wow. trying to, and now they're, you know, same people are very, very hungry to market very actively to these businesses and, you know, are in strategy sessions about how to reboot the SMB economy as if it's like some, you know, uh, a kind of continuation of civic duty. It's really fun. It's really great for our business. <laughs> well, is there a civic duty? I think there's a civic duty to participate in positive, like, economy. I don't know. I'm like, a, like, state of nature, you have to go farm and bring back food to the people of the community. Same for, you know, businesses. Like, there's, I think at that scale, given how many people it employs, I think we should, I think there, there's definitely some sort of civic duty in, in doing something somewhat productive for society. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think it, it, there's always this, you know, debate in, in the US, especially because it has this claim of this individualistic uh, promise for freedom and, and full expression of individual. But then we do know that humans do achieve more as communities. For sure. How do you see that being reflected in the data? That's an interesting one. Um, in highly dense networked communities, like say immigrant communities in like, you know, neighborhoods in the Queens or um, like anywhere where there'd be like a strong mm -hmm. immigrant community of sorts, we actually know for a fact, we did this study about a year and a half ago that um, there is more, like relative to other communities, um, uh, more revenue generated at small businesses of those communities versus like large box stores, right? And then immigrants tend to directly support the people that they know and the small businesses they know. That makes total sense. 
The other interesting thing I find is that individuals are now cultivating all kinds of communities, right? Like it is legitimately a monetizable thing to, you know, have a community online as a person now. That's also like a weird twist of facts, right? It's made fame and being a celebrity somewhat of a commodity concept, right? You have like small business celebrities now. Well, even more of a concept. Correct. I mean, you have people with like millions of followers on social media making incomes of two, $300,000 times a year. And then brands who are making hundreds of millions of dollars with almost no social media, right? There's like, there's been this re-architect of what it means to be a, a, a person online creating content, which is fascinating because people consume things less from institutions these days. And so even the community creation process I think has been made easier online. Like this, this is a dumb personal anecdote, but there's definitely one like fish shop, literally like a shop that sells fish that I follow online. And I'm just so, I love their <laughs> recipes and their stuff. And it, you know, the fact that I could, a small business owner is creating very casually this content for his fish store, I find that wonderful and kind of awesome that they have my attention just as much as, you know, the million dollar ad scrolling through my feed that we've kind of recaptured that, which we didn't have with wave one of media, like TV is very forced onto us. Um, And that we've gravitated as consumers in these preferences for things that are more unique, that have a story that you can almost relate to the people who are selling you the goods, which is what, how it was like before we scaled all of this stuff up, you know? And for me, like, that's what the experience is like in Morocco when you're in the markets and you're in the media. So it just kind of feels like the world is getting appropriately decentral in that way again. And that small businesses, you know, are, are very much part of that. Yes. But let me challenge you there with, with, even with social media. Sure. Um, yes, there was a point early on with a lot of these platforms. And actually, when a new platform comes on, that's when you kind of want to get on it. Because once the algorithms figure their way there and the influencers are created, after that, the platform starts monetizing it and reduces your reach. I've had that experience with this podcast and my listeners will know because I actually had struggled because Instagram was literally uh, limiting my reach in the months prior to election because it's a uh, social issue and the immigration is a problematic uh, thing. So they literally cut my reach. Nobody would see my posts. I I have heard all kinds of weird things from yeah Facebook and Co. Yeah, you know, no one's, <laughs> no one's pointing fingers, but I think listen, I think we know, I think we know the the algorithms are quite gamed also, right? There's a lot of gamesmanship there, broadly speaking. It's really sad. Everything from political issues to even, you know, wanting to appease the largest clients of theirs who are advertising. The algorithms can be very dumb too. They're mostly not malicious. They're mostly pretty dumb, right? They're optimizing against one factor. They're optimized against the wrong metrics. You know, it's a consumer technology transitioning into a business use case. They don't have right. all the bells and, and whistles. And so of the, the concern and, and kind of the question, my question to you is that we have witnessed all of these, you know, issues with, and we've all experienced them uh, on small scale, like me personally, and on large scale as American election. Yeah. Uh, we've seen all those troubles. Yes. How do you, how are you with your company thinking about uh, protecting the world from making the wrong decisions based on the algorithms and the data that you're collecting? Because as of now, up until now, we were kind of protected by this separation of the real world from from the digital print. And now you're bringing in all of this information and you're enriching the data, but at the same time, you're exposing more. So there are a couple of strong historical things in place to begin with. So I can't take credit for a lot of the work, but unlike 
technology companies, technology companies, any companies that deal in like payment and lending are actually quite he heavily regulated. Now, you know, the counterpart to that is what happened in 2008 and how <laughs> everyone, you know, basically got stiffed by all of these bankers who went upside down on their bets. And that happened many times all over the world in different contexts and situations. And we don't even know, I mean, speaking of current situation, we don't know yes. where we're going. Correct. I mean, people apparently don't even believe in money anymore, right? They like make a lot of people don't government printed money. Yes. Um, but the reality of the matter is like, if I want to sell software to a bank that goes into a credit decision, well, they have to formally document the process and send it to the government for review, have a stamp of approval. Like a lot of the models that our data goes into huh. literally get approved by the government. Um, and the reasons for that is it's just all kinds of strong regulation. In fact, one of our clients, um, you know, we we were had the opportunity to work with them because they were like under consent order for the government for not doing their compliance mm. well enough and all, all kinds of things like that. Um, that barred them from doing things and MA activity and all kinds of things. So we live in a more regulated world than traditional social media, right? The mob is mostly regulating social media. Like I view, by the way, you know, um, like one of the kind of reasons for why things like cancel culture are emerging is that there, there is literally no government intervention in what people say online. And so like social social forms are just appearing mm -hmm. to provide provide that weird thing. And that's also like a rabbit hole we could probably go down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but the reality of the matter is that the banks, like if you take, say, one of these yeah. big banks, I won't name any specific one because it's the case for all of them, like Amex, Chase, you know, um, Capital One, Wells Fargo, all of these guys in their buildings across the United States, sometimes there are entire floors of regulators just mm -hmm. leasing like two, three floors in their buildings so they can be that close to auditing. It's a very intense process and it goes awry often. But it would probably, you know, be in a horrible place well, if no one was looking after it at all. And right? now we are um, at the point of 2020 where crypto is going through the roof and a whole new world of DeFi decentralized finance is emerging and has a lot of enthusiasm, uh, even among the, you know, in the government also. And so how are you thinking about that? in the context of your work? So um, yes, I think the banks have offered an extremely unsatisfactory experience for small businesses and have made it very difficult. Again, why people like the community banks in this space, big amount of money. And you know what's exciting about what's happening in DeFi is that it is democratizing the rails and the infrastructure and the things that people can build on. and you know, probably what's going to happen is some much younger, much smaller company resting on top of all of this technology will have the time to be creative and care about clients. That's the only thing that happens in the end of the day. If you have the insights, then, you know, the, the scale of the past isn't as important. Now, you know, I say these things with optimism and it'll take time, but I really think that's where the world is, is heading. Um, just a lot, many smaller, much more performant companies. But you are you talking about the the traditional finance or are you talking about the decentralized finance? Where where's your personal sense? I think um, DeFi again is an infrastructure like the other one is. Crypto is a the claim is is a store of value versus the dollar. Still infrastructure. All consumers and people who produce goods care about is that the value is stable and stored. Frankly, you know yeah. there is no difference to a business, right? They their strategy is to build a product that, you know, has value and sell it regardless of what currency it is in. So for me, I'm much more concerned in these latter things. Um, I think DeFi will be actually a very, very impactful technology and it'll just change and make more efficient a lot of traditional finance. But the concepts in finance, you know, lending, you know, storing, they'll be the same. They've been the same for thousands of years, you know? Right. Yeah. That's why I was wondering if you as a company 
are looking to that world, you know, because you are doing the thing that they will also need and they will need <clears> to <throat> assess companies that do lending on, on DeFi. They will need to assess their risks too. They will need to do the same thing. We highly believe in kind of more cooperative data practices, like permission data from potentially mm -hmm. the small business itself. Right. And using that information and telling small business, we can help you analyze it. We're thinking about kind of approaching the sector in a much more decentralized way. We're always thinking about how can we get the small business engaged in our process? Right. How can we get, you know, um, like the community banks to come together? Right. There are only 5,000 of them. It's hard for them to do things like syndication of loans. Right. So pooling their loans together selling them off as a financial product so that they can service more people in their community. Mm. They have capital requirements from the government. So they can only loan so much as they have in their reserves. More and more decentral protocols and strategies are very helpful for executing those business models where you have to parse out like shares of value across the ecosystem. It's early days, you know, more mm. hype than not, I fear, but that's how all really awesome life-changing technology starts there's always you know a reason to get excited and you know for the first few rockets to crash yeah. and and all of that good stuff but we we do this we all do this for the curiosity we just want to pull the future forward a little faster that's all on that note i do want to ask you if there's anything well i know you're a techno optimist you you have to be <laughs> Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, I'm also, I like cry when I watch Black Mirror. I'm very scared of the potential future. Have you ever seen that show, Black Mirror? Yeah, it's a wonderful show. Oh my God, I'm so scared. I'm, I'm optimistic, but like paranoid. Let's put it that way. <laughs> paranoid optimist. I love it. Well, can you tell me one thing that makes you most excited about technology overall? I think removing the barrier to knowledge you know we talk about kind of geography as an immigrant right we do it to get access to a better education um you know bigger market that we can be entrepreneurs in these sort of things and when i think about that experience it's like always like why can't this be the case everywhere right and i guess what i'm really interested in and what gives me the most hope on the internet is just this idea of knowledge becoming more and more and more easy to share and to consume and to, you know, uh, uh, sift through globally. Like the reasons we do what we do is to teach computers to, you know, interact with Wikipedia the way humans yeah. interact with Wikipedia, right? Like we, as humans, it's just a, an amazing superpower. And for, I think that is worth all of the risk and the hype the like danger hype and the paranoia hype and you know how online has has messed with our brains and attention spans and i i think that fundamental access to knowledge by everyone is such like when we they write the history books thousands of years from now it'll be this is when that started and society will look very very different on all fronts politically etc but no matter what i think they'll point to you know that period in the late 20th century when we started democratizing knowledge and hopefully it'll be a good outcome but I think that's what's happening right now you know just obsessed with how easy it is to know, to discover like truth and, and despite all the fakeness oh, I can't not follow up yeah, yeah, I thought I we we're gonna wrap up but you, you you just led into a whole different you know thing and it's we're moving away a little bit from data, but I'm let's do it. I, I'm very much fascinated with you know the concept of truth and truth in media, and you know and representation yes. of you know values and what we're projecting as humans into the into that future that we're creating. You know, your business is about machine learning, yep. and most businesses are to some degree or to, to that yep. degree or another, everything is. And that's what Web 3.0 is, right? It's machines learning about the machines and algorithms learning about the algorithms and interacting without even us knowing. And that's the world where we're going. And how do we infuse these machines with the right values? And how do we protect 
that. I think it's a one-to-one parody probably between like society health and what the machines do, right? Like, I don't think there's necessarily something inherent to the machines. They certainly could have unconscious bias in like an insurance algorithm. I mean, it's a very, very tough question. Like, what is our responsibility in uh, machine learning work? They started talking about this in the health space too, which I like the way they're talking about it, but I haven't seen this conversation make it to the machine learning space. In the machine learning space, they talk a lot about bias and algorithms, but um, in the healthcare space, the buzzword is outcomes, Mm -hmm. outcome-based medicine. So right now, the medical process is basically extremely narrowed in from a dollar sense at the approval of the drug. Mm-hmm. If your drug passes class three approval or whatever that last yeah. FDA stage, FDA late stage approval, you know, your company is going public, like everything's projected out from there. Like we know how many people suffer from this disease and all of those charts kind of happen overnight. Um, but then the medical community, you know, with the opioid crisis and a bunch of other mistakes that they've been learning from for quite some time, have been talking a lot about outcome-based measurement. Like, let's not put the full onus on whether this drug is good for the market on approval day. Let's view and measure how it's been affecting actual patients over 5, 10, 20 years, and put more of our time as like regulators, as a medical community, looking at the outcomes. That conversation, I think, is probably the most important one to have in machine learning. It's like, okay, what is your model doing? Not just what it's made out of. What are your data points? Do you have PII in your data points? Are you using, you know, ethnicity? Almost forget what happened during that phase and start from fresh and measure again, what impacts is this having in the community? Are like impoverished populations, you know, getting more impoverished? Are people, you know, uh, uh, minorities, uh, home ownership rates uh, uh, like uh, falling through the cracks real fast. But just let's measure the outcomes. And there's some honesty to that because you kind of have to live with your sins as opposed to, you know, checkbox mark and then whatever the algorithm does. Well, you know, you came in and we showed you what we were doing and you okayed it. I think there's some more um, ownership that has to be taken. You know, I, I feel like we're pretty weak with how we treat um, technology companies, especially in the media space, over how they handle truth. Like we, we have a couple good examples now to see what was going on. I mean, do you remember Cambridge Analytica, how it was such a big deal? Yeah, that's... And, and yeah. then what? The problem was that they got caught in the middle of it, right? And, you know, no one's really talked about this kind of outcome-based approach for a while. So. I, I think there's some room to explore um, generally if, if we're thinking that way and kind of constantly measuring things. And I'd love to see um, us come together as a society, likely, you know, some part government, some part just, you know, a, a, a private responsibility of the companies deploying yeah. these algorithms. And so do you think that you, your company could be part of that? Oh, yeah. We, we're always, you know, uh, uh, th- thinking about that sort of thing. You know, we, there are a couple of good resources in this space. Um, Bloomberg hosts a great thing called Data for Good, which talks about these issues um, a, a fair amount. There's an um, mm-hmm. institution in New York called Data and Society, um, which holds a lot of workshops in this regard. I mean, Microsoft hired someone who used to work mm-hmm. for us. who's a philosophy professor at the University of Denver researching ethics and AI. There, there's some like slow movement towards it. And, you know, the very politicized parts of it tend to be um, kind of erratic as always. I mean, there was some high profile firings from Google, um, which I, I don't know if people saw, um, but there's a lot of non-politicized, really solid work at insurance companies who've been dealing with these issues forever. Um, things like redlining, uh, that sort of thing. and so. People seem, you know, very open to it because no one wants to live in that dystopian future. Everyone's scared of that. Um, And so people push boundaries, but I feel like society and practitioners at large have been holding steady line and and increasing their interest in this discussion. Well, that's very hopeful. So we've learned something. 
I think we're at the beginning of learning something. It's more like we're at the beginning of this insane journey with you know artificial intelligence and machine learning, but we seem to be going in it with you know ten years <laughs> of you know Keanu Reeves movies um, reminding us that it could be a very scary world if we don't understand the power of what we're dealing with. What machine learning does is it just allows you to process a tremendous amount of data and again have um, less of a, a footprint to cover if you're doing anything it could be a nefarious something or a positive something um, but it allows people to have superhuman powers even as one person developer somewhere yeah i think we've got a lot of good stuff amazing okay i'm so excited to hear and good stuff all right good. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed it. Make sure to check out part one of our conversation wherever you're listening right now. Find Isham on Twitter. Find Enigma's website. Find their articles on Medium. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. And get your Weedy Alien Summer merch with a 10% discount. If you order between May 27th and June 1st, use promo code summer 21 at checkout all the links are in the show notes and on our website quick last bit of housekeeping the show will be off for the month of june we're taking our summer break early while things are still kind of chill and we will be back in july with more amazing and inspiring stories of immigrants who are kicking ass in the u.s in the meantime you can catch up with the backlog of all the 50 plus episodes and Last but not least, do not forget to share the show with a friend. I don't know, someone who's into Black Mirror, or someone who's into data science, or someone who's like Isham and me, a paranoid techno-optimist. Just click share and text them a link. Seriously, think of a person right now. Remember, sharing is caring. It's a nice thing to do. And remember, we're here to stay. We'll find our way. Thank you for listening. Have a great Memorial Day weekend. Have a great June. Stay safe when you're out there. Love y'all. Peace. This is my country, my country, and it don't mean a thing.